tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal. Dr. Deal is the Foundation's Senior Director of Science and Communication. She received her DVM from the University of Tennessee and started her own practice career in a bustling emergency clinic in New Jersey, eventually going on to become an owner in a large referral practice. After 14 years there, she left to pursue a career in medical communication and joined Morris Animal Foundation in 2013. Dr. Deal is a board certified small animal internal medicine specialist and a certified veterinary journalist. She lives in Colorado with her husband, two children, three cats, oh boy, too many fish to count, and one very lovable Labrador retriever. I just want to share a little bit of information about the Morris Animal Foundation, which is a global leader in supporting studies to find solutions to serious health threats to animals. Since its founding, it has invested more than $136 million in nearly 3,000 studies that improved the health and quality of life for dogs, cats, horses, and wildlife around the world. Dr. Deal, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on, Stacey. So, of course, my first question that I ask all my guests is, how did you become passionate about cats? Well, I, my first personal pet was a cat that I got from my neighbor, I think like lots of people when I was six, and that was Fluffy, who very quickly transferred her affections from me to my father. And my parents were both cat lovers as well and had cats as kids. And we lived in a really small house. So it cats really made sense to us. So we had cats the whole time I was growing up. And of course, like a lot of people, I went from very early on wanted to be a veterinarian. And really cats were my first exposure to a lot of animals that we had all kinds, like a lot of vets, we had gerbils, mice, a crayfish one time, you know, whatever we could drag home. And so that's how I really, you know, cats were always part of my life. In fact, I can scarcely remember a time and I don't want to date myself, but I'm 59 that I have not had a cat since I was six and fluffy. And obviously as a small animal veterinarian, cats were a huge part of my practice. And I really enjoyed working with cats and, you know, dealing with them. So I've been a cat person a long time now. And of course, I have three that we got from a shelter about three years ago. Just very quickly, we went and we asked for kittens, you know, we're looking for kittens and they bring in three that are from a family. And I knew right away, like there is no way we are going to leave any kittens behind. We came for either one or two cats and we knew we were leave for three and we did. And so now I have three um, two-year-olds. Excellent. Wow. Well, you just, you kept the whole family together. So that was great. That's very, very cool. And it's great that you've had cats, you know, your whole life. You probably can't even imagine a world without cats. Not anymore. I I really can't. Uh, They have been with me almost, you know, except for a few periods, like in college, but even in vet school, I had cats, even when I moved to Colorado pretty quickly, I think within a month or two of being here, I adopted my first two cats and, and yeah, it's been cats ever since. (laughs) 
So tell me a bit about the Morris Animal Foundation. You've been with them for seven years. There must have been some motivation for you to leave private practice to work for an organization that may not be considered specifically as hands-on. And so tell us about the foundation and tell us about why you felt it was important to join them. Right. Well, I was in practice, as you mentioned, for quite a long time in all different capacities. I was in private practice and then went back, got extra training, went to uh, specialty practice. And I think like a lot of people after being there for a long time, I was you know, kind of tired. I had kids and I was looking to make a change. And I had known about Morris Animal Foundation for a very, very long time. I learned about them when I was a resident because they were a source of funding when you needed a grant. And that's really one of the first times, though, I can actually remember Dr. Mark Morris Jr. in the 80s. Like he was one of the only guys who talked about animal nutrition and he would come to your vet school and give you nutrition classes because there were no faculty, right, really involved in small animal nutrition. So I knew about him, went into practice, would donate to the foundation when I had a patient who would pass away. So that was one of our go-to organizations for that. Then I got a grant from them while I was still in practice. And as I looked to transition, it was just a natural fit. They're here in Denver. And I really respected the organization and what they did, though even me, till I got into it, I had no idea of the scope of how much money they've invested and our portfolio. And that's how I, I got there. It's been a great fit for me as a medical writer and communicator to work for them. So share a little bit about the programs and the mission of the foundation. Absolutely. So I think this is a painful thing to talk about, but I think people are not naive that for years, centuries, animals have been used in experiments, but not to benefit them in any way. And Dr. Mark Moore Sr., our founder, really was troubled by that. He was a small, one of the very first people who did small animal veterinary medicine in the United States, right? Before then it was mixed or large. And he said, you know, I want to start a foundation that is focused on research that benefits animals directly. And right from the get-go, cats were included in the portfolio. It was dogs and cats. And then it moved to horses, llamas, alpacas, wildlife. So we have a really broad portfolio. The whole mission is really funding really good research that will impact the lives of animals in a positive way and really sometimes focus on diseases that are specific for our pet populations that don't have a human analog, right? That's where some people get money because they can tie it to a human disease. And we've looked at all different kinds of problems. We'll take all comers, you know, come to us with your best proposal and we scrutinize them. We fund globally. So we have cat studies, for example, right now we have one in Australia one in Hong Kong, a lot, of course, in the United States, in the UK. And um, so we'll take take anything. And people come to us literally from all around the world to help them fund their studies. And the folks that approach you for funding for studies, are they primarily veterinary students or other, is it faculty, you know, or businesses, corporate world? Where, where are they coming from? The Almost all of our funding goes to people based at veterinary institutions, almost all like really well-known researchers, faculty members, partly because they have the wherewithal. We have some pretty strict criteria on, for example, animal use, even if they're people's pets, which is where we're going, we really have put aside purpose-bred animals, right? Studies really need to be done on uh, patients 
that they're seeing in their hospital or in a Petri dish, right? So we focus on those. We do have some uh, student money. Part of our mantra is to be training the next generation of veterinary scientists. And we have some student funding so people can do little projects over the summer, again, to try to get veterinary students interested in veterinary research. And again, it can be any, any species and that's kind of where um, we we typically find. We do have a few government. We don't do a lot of corporate. We have corporate sponsors, but we don't fund. Um, we're not going to give Purina money. You know what I mean? Or something. But Purina has given us money, which is really nice. <laughs> and we'll often work, work with them. But by far and away, the vast majority of our donations come from regular people. So before we hit the recording button, you were telling me about a very interesting study that came out with regards to inflammation in cats. You want to share a little bit about that study? Yeah, this is really exciting because this is recent. A few, several years ago, one of our founder's wives, Betty Morris, wanted to honor her husband, Mark Morris Jr., who I mentioned, who's passed. And she set up a very generous funding a program that funds a senior researcher and really gives them a big boost of money to look at a very specific problem in veterinary medicine. And what we did, she wanted to fund a second one and she wanted to focus on cats, but she goes, you know, what are the problems that are important to people who own cats and to the veterinarians who treat them? And we sent out a survey and we asked people, you know, a bunch of people from our donor base who own cats and said, what's important to you? What problems do you deal with as a pet owner? And the same for veterinarians. What frustrates you? What do you wish you knew more about? And what came out of that survey was behavior. We really don't know what we need to know about feline behavior. And our clients ask us if about it, and people who own cats are curious. And I think all of us who've owned cats have had cats with behavior problems. I mean, there are a lot. And we all know that behavior problems are why the number one reason cats end up in shelters and rescues. And it's a major cause of euthanasia, right? It's one of the top causes of euthanasia of pets. So this made sense to us. And Betty Moore said, yep, let's, let's do a feline behavior. And we convened a panel to give us some suggestions, like what are the some of the top issues. And then we put out a call for proposals and we got all kinds. And one, the one that won, (laughs) I guess, is one out of University of Pennsylvania. They have a quite big behavior section and they wanted to look at how chronic inflammation affects behavior in older cats. And that inflammation could look like arthritis. Like we don't know tons about osteoarthritis in cats. And that would make sense that it would affect behavior as they get older, but also does it change your cognitive abilities? If you have chronic inflammation, if we control inflammation, can we help cats as they get older? And let's face it like us, they get vague. They can have signs. Like I've had older kitties that sort of would wander around you know, like they have Alzheimer's, right? And I think we are all recognized. They do get these these issues and it's big. Like I think with, oh, what do they say? Probably half the cats over 15 years of age suffer from some kind of cognitive change, 
when they get old. And so this is a fantastic study that's just starting now where these researchers from University of Pennsylvania will be looking at this and they're actually collaborating with a group in Italy, which is really cool too. So it's going to be, I think, a really exciting study and try to tease out some of this because the idea is if we know we can intervene and and really enhance the life of our elderly cats. That's fantastic. I was actually earlier today listening to a podcast about human people and inflammation and behavior, depression, disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, ALS, and and MS, and all these various different diseases that have a relationship with inflammation and how it connects with the gut. And so, you know, one of the things you might end up looking at is how are the gut issues from, from cats, you know, impacting what's going on in their bodies as it does with people too. Right. And we know so little, but I, if you've ever had a cat, you've probably had cat that had inflammatory bowel disease, right? It's pretty common in cats. And uh, as a gastroenterologist, it was something I saw. It was one of the top things I probably saw in cats that cats came to me for with chronic kidney disease also probably there, right? And it would be really exciting. These guys, the, the thing about this particular award is it helps with people's salary as well as I mean, it's big. And so they have a lot of time to devote to this. And they're like looking at a whole bunch of different aspects. So you're right. It's going to be very, very exciting. And we're happy that we were able to do that for cats. Give your feline friend protein-packed meals. They'll crave with Smalls. Smalls is fresh, human-grade food for cats delivered right to your doorstep so you too can embrace your inner house cat. All cats are obligate carnivores. They need fresh, protein-packed meals. Conventional cat food is made with profits in mind, using low-quality, cheap meat byproducts, grains, and starches coated in artificial flavors. Smalls, on the other paw, is made with cats in mind. Smalls develops complete and balanced recipes for all life stages with leading cat nutritionists. Starting with human-grade ingredients like you or I would find at the market, Smalls recipes are gently cooked to lock in protein, vitamins, minerals, and moisture. No room for fillers, no need for flavoring. Better quality ingredients mean a better, healthier life for your cat. Since switching to smalls, cats have experienced improved digestion and a less smelly litter box, softer and shinier coats, plus better breath. Try smalls today for your cats in your household. Hooch loved it. Use offer code community cats at checkout for a total of 30% off your first order at smalls.com. <laughs> Are you ready to be part of the solution for feral and stray cats in your neighborhood? If so, then make sure to sign up for our next Neighborhood Cats TNR Certification Workshop. A new workshop is held online each month, generally on the first Saturday of the month, but please check our website for exact dates. For just $10, expert instructors will teach you best practices for trap, neuter, and return. TNR. Learn what TNR is and why it works. We'll cover getting along with neighbors, preparations for trapping, trapping itself, including entire colonies at once, feeding, providing winter shelter, and more. Take advantage of the interactive format, extensive handouts, and video footage of actual projects. Attendees will receive a certificate of attendance and gain access to an ongoing Facebook group for networking with other TNR activists. The two-and-a-half-hour workshop is led by Susan Richmond, the Executive Director of Neighborhood Cats, and Brian Cordes, Neighborhood Cats National Programs Director. To find out the date of the next workshop and sign up, just visit communitycatspodcast.com. 
As we emerge from the global pandemic of COVID, fostering is emerging as the new normal in the animal welfare industry. But shelter management software doesn't provide the tools or the workflows for communicating with fosters at scale, so many organizations struggle to maintain hundreds of animals in foster homes. If only there was a system that was custom-built specifically to solve this problem. Introducing Foster Space, powered by our friends at Dubert. Foster Space was custom-built to allow you to manage hundreds of foster relationships and to communicate with them via text, email, and even Facebook Messenger. Your fosters have a portal where they can upload videos and photos and updates on their animals, and organizations can schedule fosters for meet-and-greets, adoption days, or anything else they need. There's so much more to check out. Sign up for free at www.dubert.com and go to the Foster Space tab to get started. Um, you also had mentioned that you have, or there was a, a happy, healthy cat campaign at the Morris Animal Foundation. And for our listeners that might not be aware of it, can you just share what the, the components of that were? Yeah, this was kind of an interesting campaign that was uh, several years ago. It actually predated me, though I came in on the tail end of it. And it was a campaign that was um, where uh, the foundation decided to put some kind of focused funding at really studies that affected uh, the well-being and health and welfare, particularly of shelter, cats that ended up in shelters or rescues was was one arm of it. But um, what came out of it that I think people have seen is, is there was a very intense push to look at, a lot of studies looked at disease in rescues and disease in shelters, right? We know cats that go into shelters often develop upper respiratory infections. I think that's super, super common. And they get rid of them, but let's face it, a sneezing, snorkely cat is not going to get adopted. And this stuff can spread like wildfire, right? And it is something that can really bedevil a rescue or a shelter. And they one, a couple of the studies did some really interesting looks at cage space and cage setup, partly to minimize disease, which actually boiled down to a lot of minimizing stress in these kitties, right? Because we know these are herpes viruses. So just like we get cold sores, right? When we're sick or stressed, these cats will break with URIs. And in fact, I have one kitty who one eye waters, like go figure that, right? But I've had it in many cats that I've owned. There's always somebody who's breaking with a URI, right? And one of the things that came out of it that you probably see, like if you go to Petco and you see their cages or shelters is the boxes and the tubes right in between. And one of our researchers actually pioneered some of that. And it was hilarious because she showed us, she has pictures of her welding stuff between cages because she said, I wonder if this cage setup would help. And again, that vertical, like if you go in, there's no cages opposite, right? That's probably a no-no. And again, having little boxes, smaller areas, not where they're right in front of us, they can hide, uh, made a huge difference, which, you know, some of us with cats go, well, that seems obvious, but it wasn't always obvious, right? I know when I started practicing, it was a bunch of metal cages, sometimes facing each other, little space, some tiny little litter box there, right? And many of what some of the findings that they did have translated very practically into this. They also looked at vaccinating cats again after if they break, right, in a shelter. And one of the ones from CSU that was really, really interesting, just emphasizes the whole stress piece is they went to the shelter found cats were sneezing. They're like, great, we're going to take them for our study. And I think they got like 30 cats. I'm just kind of spitballing a little bit. But anyway, they bring 30 cats to CSU 
to do like some studies on upper respiratory infections. These are infectious disease guys. So they're like Petri dish and stuff like that, but they need samples. And a third of the cats stopped sneezing simply by going to a new facility that was less stressful for them. And so again, they're like, oh, well, okay, we fixed the cats. They're not clinical anymore. But it, but the point of that is they wrote it up and they said, look how much stress, look how much that influences cats and how we really need to work on separating cats from dogs. And so uh, some of those things that we just take for granted came from that great, happy, healthy cat campaign. Well, and over COVID, you know, with all the shelters closing down and becoming foster-based organizations, the amount of disease for cats, I mean, obviously, as well as people, we were socially distancing and the cats are socially distancing and the upper respiratory levels for cats was way down. So, you know, many groups report their, you know, medication uh, orders, you know, was cut in half or even more so, you know, because you still, if you have a diabetic cat, you still have to buy your insulin, but you're not having to buy all the antibiotics and stuff for the upper respiratory because, they're all out in foster care. And so they've got reduced stress and reduced population. Right, right, exactly. And I think the CSU group saw that too, surprisingly. They didn't think, because they're actually going from one to another, but they had smaller rooms and fewer cats in them and it helped. And that helped the shelter at Larimer County, you know, kind of rethink how they had stuff. Right. And it gets to thinking too about like each each shelter, like what's your magic number? Because I, I definitely get the sense that they're, based on the size of the facility and everything, each organization will say, you know, oh, well, if I'm at 65 cats, this will happen. If I'm at 45, this will happen. You know, if I'm at 25, this will happen. And so, you know, you can sort of find out what your what your balancing point there and then try and orient your program so that then you're at a certain level of balance, I guess I would say for, for the whole whole group. But I find that I find that really interesting. I have a question for you. Many of our listeners are feral cat trappers or community cat trappers. They feed colonies of of cats. They're out there. They're supporting. Certainly a lot of them are also rescuers. They're trapping cats and kittens and bringing them in to rescue and that kind of thing. But from, from your organization and your experience, what sort of information do you have to share for those that are really compassionate and passionate about our community cats? Well, I think that is a really difficult question that the foundation has actually tried to tackle. As part of the Happy Healthy Can campaign, for example, we tried to look at contraception. Didn't pan out. I mean, I'll just say the stuff that, and I think that's still a holy grail out there, right? For, you know, could we have a contraceptive shot? So we're still working on that. I think we did a really interesting study, and I'm not sure if it got published, where a gal in Florida, where many of you know, there's some really big, um, like Maddie's, um, trying to remember, uh, that just escapes you, but Julie Levy, there are a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of people there, right? Who are working on it. And we worked with them where one of her grad students actually went out and tried to do something completely different, which was a social science study on people who trapped feral cats and were really passionate about them. And she also interviewed people who were, I mean, it's another side of the coin, which is the people who are like the Audubon Society right? Concerned about feral cat populations and birds and people who had the other side, which were like, I'm really concerned about feral cats. Like I'm very concerned. And she came up with some algorithms and some commonalities because she said, I need to find something to start the conversation because this is so antagonistic. 
this relationship. And it was really, really interesting. And they're trying to do some of it in Florida, which has a big feral cat population, right? If the weather is good for feral cats to live outside. And I think we all know Florida is like the home of invasive species, right? And some people consider feral cats, right? An invasive species. And how do we deal with that? And I think right now that I think a lot of the things that people are doing that are are really trying hard to get at this program and, and problem and dress it in a humane way that doesn't include exterminating, right? Uh, feral cats is how we have to go. And I think that was one of the commonalities that actually this gal found is that even in the people who were really concerned about feral cats killing birds, they didn't want to destroy them. Like many of them were like, no, I don't want to do that, but you feel um, helpless. But I think keeping talking is important. And I really appreciate my parents did that for a while. They had a cat. I think like a lot of people like get a cat that dumped a bunch of kittens on their basement and they fed this cat and they ended up with quite a few cats and they worked really hard on getting them all uh, sterilized. They actually got a lot of them placed with our neighbors who I'm sure love them, but, but they got, you know what I mean? To work with that. And I think actually a, a collective effort and even like people just doing a little bit the more people that can do a little bit like fostering can really help dealing with that. And we haven't done one of those studies in a long time, to be honest with you, kind of the social science aspects of it. We're moving toward this inflammation study, but it's important for people and people are really passionate about it. One last question I have for you is the question around sort of as we've gone through COVID over the last year and a half and, and from your organization, what sort of impacts have you seen happen with the veterinary community during the last you know, 12 to 18 months? Well, from our standpoint, the problem is research has ground to a halt in many cases for us. We have so many people were locked out of their labs. So many people that were doing clinical trials couldn't get patients in. They're starting to gear up again quite a bit as vet schools allow more people, but a lot of them are still curbside service, right? So it's it's really, really impacted our researchers from that point. The other thing that we've been getting too is a lot of questions and concerns about COVID and cats, right? And I think we used to go, oh, COVID doesn't go from people to cat, people, you know, it goes from people to animals. And then there's some evidence, maybe you can get it from certain species. And that's caused a lot of anxiety, though. I think everybody in our community says, don't get rid of your cat, right? But realize you can actually give it to them. Maybe they can keep it and give it back. And we actually have a study, it's actually in dogs, where they're going to look at banked blood samples to see if dogs seroconverted, even if they had no signs. But, you know, the jury's still out. I think the sad part was just the lack of research. Everything stopped for us. And that was really tough. We kept giving grants in the hopes people could get back in. But many of our researchers were like, sorry, we got nothing to talk to you about because we can't get in. Dr. Deal, if folks are interested in finding out more about the Morris Animal Foundation, how would they do that? Sure. I think I would encourage everyone to go to our website, which is one big long word, morrisanimalfoundation.org. And what we have on our website is kind of a catalog of all of our studies and you can search by species. So you can see what we've done with cats. We have a blog that addresses all different kinds of issues. Uh, tends to be more focused heavily on dog and cat because in reality, those are our biggest donor base. And the 
most studies we've ever done are dog and cat studies when you look at total numbers. So we have that, we have webinars, we have um, some uh, videos that have been created that talk about different issues, or you can at least learn more about us. And definitely about the Mark Morris Jr. Award. We also have done a few years ago, we had a big FIP initiative and that black market drug everybody wants. Well, that was developed through uh, research that we funded. And, and, you know, we've done a lot of, uh, that was initiative a few years ago. So you can learn all about the different studies we funded. You can see what we've got going right now and how uh, we operate a little bit when we look at cat projects and how we determine who to fund. We always leave there's always more projects than we have money, um, which is sad. We hate to leave them on the table, but uh, you can learn more about what, what we've done. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? No, I just really appreciate you, you know, being having the opportunity to come on. And, you know, I would encourage people to look at what we've done. And we have people who contact us and go, have you ever thought about this or whatever? And we have funded in private practice, like people like me, we have funded organizations as well. Who have done research. So it's not without the realm of possibility if you have an organization that has a good idea to come and seek funding. That's great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the show. And I hope we'll have you on again in the future. That would be great. Thanks so much, Stacey. This was fun. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Did you attend our recent online feline leukemia day? We hope you learned some new and surprising information from the presentations that will help you save more cats. Events like Feline Leukemia Day would not be possible without the generous sponsorships of the following organizations. The Tompkins Foundation for Feline Leukemia Advocacy, Humane Network, and Vets Pets. Would you like to support content that helps save feline lives? Please visit communitycatspodcast.com and click on Support CCP to learn more about sponsorship opportunities.